Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsors, Evercast and Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last eight years, I've done more than 350 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we're speaking with Oscar-winning editor Mark Sanger, ACE, about the blockbuster film Jurassic World Dominion. Mark was one of my very first Art of the Cut guests eight years ago when he won the Oscar for Gravity. Since then, he's worked on Transformers last night, and we last spoke on Art of the Cut about the film's Mowgli Legend of the Jungle and Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Mark worked his way up through the ranks as an assistant editor and VFX editor on films like Tomorrow Never Dies, The Mummy, Die Another Day, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and Children of Men. Before we hop into our discussion with Mark, a brief thank you to our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Evercast. The Evercast app combines video conferencing with secure, high-quality streaming and creative collaboration tools all in one place. Review content with your team and make cuts together in real time. No file sharing, no hardware, no headache. If you sign up anytime this summer and mention Art of the Cut, you'll get $75 off each month for the duration of your new subscription. For the details, contact sales at www.evercast.us. Exclusions apply. For those who've been listening to Art of the Cut for a while, you've heard me talk to numerous editors about their use of Evercast, and today's guest, Mark Sanger, is no exception. So check out that evercast.us site to see why so many rely on it. Let them know you heard about it on Art of the Cut. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end -end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free, no limits, 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you in your latest project, check out all their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com slash AOTC. To see how they can help you on your latest project, check out all their tools, including Sapphire and Mocha Pro, at borisfx.com slash AOTC. Also, if you want to read this interview with great visual support, go to borisfx.com slash AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now to talk all things Jurassic with Mark Sanger, ACE. So, Mark, you and Joe Walker were my very first two Art of the Cuts. 
So it's great to be back with you. Gravity, for which you won the Oscar, correct? Yeah, that was like eight years ago. And yeah, absolutely. So we were uh, lucky enough, um, me and the team, we uh, we got the Academy Award for that. And that was a tough gig. I don't know if I would call it luck, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well-deserved is what I would say. Uh, let's talk about some of these things that I wanted to, to chat about after I saw the film. One of them is, and I've been cutting some action sequences recently, nothing like yours, but right, they're composed of these little teeny moments of usable stuff surrounded by a bunch of crap that you can't use. Since this is a big action movie, I know it's other things and it's got a lot of heart and all this, but talk to me about trying to build these action sequences from these usually pretty small moments. Well, what was interesting is, you know, whenever you go on to a different movie with a different director, different team, they all manage everything in different ways. And on this one, I'd never worked with Colin Trevorrow before. And I was intrigued to see how he would handle this sort of thing, what was in his head. What I found interesting was it was a combination of Colin and Dan Bradley, the second unit director. They were really in sync from the word go. What I found astonishing is Colin's handling of action and Dan's handling of action are actually very similar. So there was a synchronicity between main unit and second unit, which as an editor is so important because often you get these super talented second unit directors who do this amazing action. But when you try and intercut it with the the main unit action, you have a major problem on your hands because there's a disparity between styles. I've had that several times. So the great news first out of the gate was that because they work uh, very similarly, editing of the sequences came together fairly fluidly. What we had in this scenario, which made it certainly unique for me, was this was essentially a James Bond, Jason Bourne style action sequence, the main one in the movie, but with dinosaurs. So what that means is that under normal circumstances, these guys are choreograph choreographing very specific beats and moments. And you do get that in the in amongst all the dailies. But what you also have to accommodate for is that the fact that the bad guys in the chase, they don't exist in reality. And so you're cutting with clean plates, you're cutting with camera moves that are panning off the heroes, whip pans off to nothing. And that both, as an editor, that's both um, a curse and a privilege. A curse in that you have to use that age-old imagination that we have to do with any CG creature sequence. But it's, it's a privilege in that it actually allows you to uh, have some fun playing with different ideas when it comes down to your to your edit because the dinosaurs can be doing whatever you want them to do. And coming back around to how Colin and Dan worked is that there was a flexibility in the material. You could either go with it as planned or you could accommodate for Colin saying, hey, let's have the dinosaur do this. The flexibility of being able to play different scenarios and the only limitation really was your imagination. You know, he puts cameras in places that, you know, like swooping through these alleyways. When you're dealing with that sort of luxury and wealth of stunning material, it's not like you really have to uh, make much of an effort to put something exciting together, you know? Every single camera angle has its own dynamic and its own rhythm. The tricky part actually is gauging the rhythm of the sequences, the rhythm and the pace of the sequences, because in the case of that sequence, it, it starts fairly small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the audience you know, gets to a point where they can't believe it's, uh, it's getting as big as it is. And then it goes around another corner and you, into another set piece 
dealing with something of that sort of scale, what you don't want it to become is relentless. And you also need to be tracking these characters as they're going all around all over the place, plus also showing off all the, the beautiful dinosaurs. So there was a lot of work that went into the balance of the edit, the structure of the edit of that particular set piece. So I would love to stay in that discussion. Is building that structure and, and discovering, you put it together one way and then you watch it and then you say, this is too relentless or there is a lull here. So talk to me a little bit about determining that structure of that scene. The, the, the key for me, and thankfully Colin agreed, is to start with it really fat and big and to gradually chip away at it and just take your chip away, not from the ends, but also from the middle and then stand back and look at it again and to gradually reduce. And if, if you're doing it that way, you get perspective on things. I don't think you could handle a sequence like that from a logistical point of view, from a, you know, even from a creative point of view, if you were putting back huge chunks and trying it that way and then taking out moments or scenes, it really had to be a, a, a sort of a, on a granular level from beginning to end. And obviously it took some time, but I think that's the only way you can really handle it is to look at it, uh, look at all the small details and what's working in terms of driving the, the rhythm and the pace and the shape of everything rather than looking big. And by the time you, we got to the end of that process, just whittling, chipping away at it, ultimately, I think whatever we took out, we rarely, we didn't put it back in. And gradually, it, we just felt we were constantly refining it into a good place. I think if you were to do it any other way, there's no way that you could get a gauge on whether or not it's it's working or not because that's there's the age-old problem that that any of us as editors have which is once you've got used to it then it's actually quite easy for you to lose a handle on whether or not it is relentless or not or whether or not it, it is running at the right sort of uh, rhythm and tempo and then of course that whittling down process we would watch the sequence within the context of the reel and they're within the context of the movie because what may play a really sharp and slick and fluid as a standalone sequence of course once you get it into the surrounding material that was a long old sequence it it could break everything else around it and that for me was it was important one just as a sidebar i cut in reels from the moment we start shooting so what I do is I get the assistant to take the timed script and to build cards out into a six-roll movie with the, the cards to the scene length that the script supervisor has timed the scenes out to. Wow. And then what you have is you have six reels from day one and you start adding your scene assemblies into each reel. One of the benefits of that is you can see how long you're running versus what the script timings are from the word go. But the second is that on big effects movies like these, it's very useful, I find, for every department that is going to be there with you in post-production to be looking at everything in terms of reels from the moment you start shooting. You turn over these big visual effects sequences and sometimes musical sequences or sound sequences fairly early on in these movies. And so to be working in reels from the word go, I find very helpful for all of the departments that you'll be working through with till the end. What that also means is that when you're looking at a sequence like that action sequence, you can look at it from the perspective of uh, the whole movie or you can just choose okay today we'll just look at it in the context of the reel um, and either of those two scenarios are useful depending upon how that sequence is fitting in or within the surrounding elements that is so interesting to me because just yesterday i was cutting together a tv series that i had to put placeholders in 
But what I did was I timed the placeholders based on how long it would take to read the placeholder. Right. You're saying you're timing it based on how long the scene really should be, which is really interesting to me. Certainly to me, that's very useful. I don't think it will work for uh, every editor, and I certainly know that it it won't work for every director. But I check it out with each director I work with from the get-go, and most of them turn around and say, oh, wow, if you're thinking in reels now, then you're thinking further down the line. And there's a solidity to it. The movie I'm working on at the minute, the assistants go through and are adding sound effects and and music by reel rather than by scene. And that means, you know, the intention at least is that by the time we get to the end of shoot, then you haven't been looking at assembled, a batch of assembled scenes, but you're used to looking at uh, the movie in reels with the sound and the music applied in a sort of attempt form that is already giving you a gauge on the shape of the overall structure. I love that. To play devil's advocate, because I've had students and, and aspiring editors ask me this exact question is, why do we still work in reels? Why is this a thing? And obviously a lot of it is about deliverables, but do you find that there's another reason beyond deliverables to, to work in reels? In the old days, uh, when we had film, we had to you'd ship uh, six reels of print, six reels of sound around to your screening rooms, and you'd have the uh, changeover marks in between reels. And uh, when I was a kid, I, I was a projectionist, and I did the swapovers, and it was sort of a beautiful piece of cinema, part of the cinematic process. And of course, as the years gone by and deliverables on, on the movies, I don't believe I've worked on a movie that delivered a role of celluloid as to a cinema, certainly in five or six years, I believe. I We obviously shoot still on film, but delivering them is what was behind the original idea of breaking your, your movie out into reels. And then, of course, the process was that you could give it to different departments, give a, give it one reel to the sound department, one reel to the music department, etc. Now, to me, obviously, in the advent of digital, you just deliver a DCP at the end of the movie, and it's one long thing. So what I find, though, is as editors, you start off in a scene and you start with the the rhythm and pace and the structure of the scene. And then you come out a bit further and you come out to the the, the real length. And then beyond the real, you go to the whole movie. But I still find that process of just gradually zooming out from a shot to a scene, to a selection of scenes, to a reel, is a very good way of judging rhythm and pace. And if you skipped the reel section out and you just went from shot to scene to scenes to movie, I think it feels like you're skipping a a beat in your process to me. Obviously, that's just because that's how I'm used to doing it. But it's a too big a leap, I think, from a group of scenes to the whole movie. Yeah, that's a wow. That's uh, I've never heard it described that way. But it also makes a lot of sense. You can't go from two minutes to 120. You got to go from two to 20 to 120. There's quite a bit of score in this movie. Uh, what were you temping with? Did you have all the previous movies and all that kind of stuff? Or did you temp outside of the world of Jurassic? Occasionally we dipped into it, but the great news is that there are five other movies. We were able to tap into those as our sort of our benchmark. In those scenarios, I won't necessarily stick to what the franchise has as a back catalog of music, but I will lean into what the composer's back catalog is so that you have a consistency of style. When you're screening a movie, part of the problem we all know as editors is that if the audience feels like they are taken out of the movie at any point and you lose them, then you're clearly not necessarily going to get the scores that you're after or the reaction that you're after. 
And sometimes nowadays, what that comes down to is it may not just be an editorial moment that is losing them. It could be that you've laid the wrong, it's the wrong choice of temp music. It could be that you've got some really rough looking visual effects temps in there. And so for me, whatever can be done to mitigate the, the bumps in the road that you get from having to add temporary material are the better. And so I always find it's, a, it's certainly in terms of the temp music, stick with the composer. And in these cases, that, that immediately warms your audience to the picture edit that you're doing because it feels familiar to them. Got it. What are some of his other films? Oh, Michael, he's just done everything. He's done Mission Impossible. He just did the Batman. He does Pixar movies. He So he did Star Wars movies. The list is quite extensive. If you go around to his house in LA, he has, let's put it this way, he has a lot of very cool memorabilia. It's very difficult to pin him down to one particular genre. Very interesting. You mentioned the imagination that is necessary to see some of the action sequences that are missing the dinosaurs. The other thing that I was thinking about with this film is, for me, most of what I deal with, I have the production sound of what I need when they record the scene. But for you, in this movie, so much of the sound was not there. So can you talk about trying to deal with the fact that your production sound is not really useful or you don't have much of it? In my experience, it, it harks back to starting off with uh, film. I never cut a movie on film, but I was an assistant on film. And I worked with the old school editors, the uh, some of the greats, who the, when you're cutting on a Steenbeck or a Cam or a Moviola, you're dealing with the, just the raw elements of a piece of picture and a piece of sound. And that's how you put those movies together. And there was a discipline to that, which I wholeheartedly respect, which I try and apply to my avid work. I try, A, not to have too many multiple versions of sequences stick to one version of the sequence and, and have the courage and uh, commitment to sign off on that is the the sequence that i want because i think the, the digital realm having multiple versions of a scene it doesn't help you in your decision making process as, as an editor but more granular than that is that i tend to cut picture unless it's a dialogue scene i'll cut it without sound and I'll cut it without music. Even if it is a dialogue, if it's a dialogue action sequence, for instance, I will quite happily, if they're you know, racing along, shouting at each other as there's a car driving along somewhere, I will quite happily switch the uh, the sound off, just the, the track, and just cut the imagery. Once the imagery's cut and I can get a feel, a sense and flow of that, then I know that anything I add to it, the dialogue, the, the music, the sound effects, all of that then is going to work because ultimately your picture edit is working. When you have some really rough sound, if you've cut the picture first muted, then you know that then when you flip the, uh, the, the sound on and run the same sequence back, it's suddenly going to play real funky. But then I just take out all the, the, the bits of production that aren't working for any reason and have my assistant go through and start building just a very temp layer of fixed sound work for it. But when I run that for directors, I like it if I can say to the director, hey, look, I put this together with no sound or music. I'd like to run it for you that way wow that's a brave thing to do <laughs> sure and they'll either say no 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 can you play it with all the you know the bells and whistles which is fine because it may be that it's the first time they're seeing the sequence and they want to see it like it's playing on the big screen but also even if you then run the mute version for them second 
they can then watch that and have the confidence of going, okay, look, I wasn't distracted by any of the production track or any of this or any of that, even the blue screens and the green screens. Now I can see what you're talking about. And it gives them the confidence to know that the sequence does not depend upon temp music or temp production in order to stand up on its own two legs. Amen. I love that idea. That's super cool. There's a lot of animation. Obviously, you got all these dinosaurs, lots of plates. What are you actually cutting with? Do You were saying using your imagination. Do you actually do the whip pan over to nothing and just go, I am just going to imagine a dinosaur there? Or do you have a assistant or yourself comp something in? Depends on the movie. It actually depends upon the size of the, the CG characters that you'll be putting in. So, for instance, I think the last time we spoke was for Detective Pikachu, right? In the case of that, you've got this character who is interacting with the humans and might be sitting in the bar with them and climbing up on the bar and walking around them. Now, in that scenario, it's useful to have either some boards or some post-fizz in there in order to gauge how long that move takes. And then you're getting a sense of the physicality of one foot over the other foot and therefore how long the shot should be, etc. When working with dinosaurs, you're working, you tend to be working on a much bigger scale. In that scenario, Colin and the camera team, they knew what they were looking at and when. And we have whip pans from plates uh, where dinosaurs would be down to our lead actors who were running around and then off our lead actors back up to dinosaurs and stuff. On Jurassic, there was less imagination required to, to work out geographically where the dinosaurs would be. Now, there comes a point in the in the post-production process when you're reducing the overall length of the movie, or maybe you've got to that stage where a dinosaur battle is taking too long and you want to reduce the overall length. Then you might be able to use one of those plates as a neat continuity jump, because then you can cut to an empty plate and the dinosaur has, has moved uh, across the room and you can lift out a beat. For me, it does come down to ultimately two factors of what are the CG characters and who is the director and how do, how do they operate their camera? And those two variables will find for you as an editor how much Im imagination you need to use when putting the sequence together. Totally understand. Did you ever use previs? Not on Jurassic. No. No, we did not. Wow. That's very interesting. Let's talk about the broader dynamics of the movie. We talked a little bit about this, that you have fast action sequences and then slower, take a breath, have a release from the tension. Talk to me about how those moments evolve over the course of editing the movie. You know, I was privileged on Jurassic because Colin's one of the writers as well as the director, which meant that he really got the script into a really good place. There are moments where we've lifted beats and scenes out, of course. That's the nature of editing. But the original script was really well defined. And so we started off from a very good place. The way I work is when you're, you read the script, you can look at it and go, I think like that action sequence, that's going to be very long. How does that affect the quiet scenes around it? But at least Colin is a smart writer and he's balanced the script out knowing that. So you'll cut from an action sequence into a palate cleanser dialogue scene. And as an editor, I never felt that like I had an uphill struggle trying to define and shape the rhythm and the pace of it all. But what you do have in this movie is a bunch of different characters coming together from all over the place and that was the, the first thing that i 
really wanted to be aware of and focus on is how long is too long to be apart from any of those characters as you're building the shape of the edit. Uh, and that, that was a tricky one. And then obviously there's conversations about the legacy characters and balancing those different sets of meetings and uh, character dynamics off of each other. There was a lot of whittling that went on with that because the big Jurassic World fans who have come along to, to see their favorite characters, but also they come along to the cinema knowing that you're going to have the original cast in there as well. So you didn't want to let them wait too long. You know, in terms of a big franchise movie, not denying the audience what part of the thrills that they were coming for, uh, which is very specific to a, f- a film like this. Under normal circumstances, if Sam Neill didn't turn up until minute 50, you might forgive that, but that would be unforgivable in Jurassic World Dominion. So there was a lot of playing with that, and therefore, how long should opening action sequences be in order to get to Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, and then to Laura Dern and, and Sam Neill, and then on to Jeff Goldman, etc. So that really did take a lot of massaging. The other area that took the massaging is there's a lot of tense scenes. And if you just have one tense scene backed up against another tense scene, backed up against another tense scene, it again, that could become uh, relentless, even for the fans. There was a lot of work that went in to ensure that by the time you got to the end of one tense scene, then you had some sort of breather before we picked up this character in this situation, then they had a predicament with another dinosaur. Had we not spent all the time we did balancing and refining each of those interconnected suspense scenes. Again, interestingly, what could happen is it it could just have become utterly monotonous. And that obviously, when all the fans have come to see the these two sets of characters come together, if it gets boring before they come together, then you've lost your audience. Was it as scripted or did you find moments that made it easier to make those transitions between storylines? Uh, invariably for me, what I find is you go in and you, you structure it out as scripted and then you experiment, but without putting pressure on yourself to make any of it work, just let's move these things around and let's juggle them up. Before I sat down with Colin, I would go through and just see what other options we had in our arsenal there in terms of jumping back and forth and working out what was the best possible cocktail to come up with based upon those ingredients. What was frustrating is typically when you've got a, a movie like this, when you're bringing together so many different characters on different different continents with the ultimately the getting to the same goal you could have a structure that worked all really well up until this point and then there'll be that one scene that isn't working where it's placed and if you then remove it as you might do a movie that isn't complexly crafted then everything that follows doesn't work now we need to work out what about that scene isn't playing in that moment in order to use it as the connective tissue to get onto uh, the next scene. Often I would find that, yeah, if you delve into the, the nitty gritty of why it's not working in the structure, you would then be able to work out what it is about the scene that you needed to address in order to keep it where it was, but get through it in a slightly different execution. Mm, interesting. There are a lot of scenes that amp up and amp up, and I'm sure they were probably written that way. You could feel them when you were reading them. The tension is increasing. Talk to me about supporting and enhancing that in editorial, what you were actually doing 
shot by shot to get that scene to climax? For me, it does depend upon whether or not it's a character scene or an action scene or a uh, suspense scene. Uh, we've got examples of each one of those fitting into the formula that you've just described there in, in this movie. Actually, I would say the the most complex to address are the uh, the scenes where there's no dialogue, no action. There's this scene where Bryce climbed this structure in the jungle and out of the jungle comes not one, but two, but apparently a number of Dilophosauruses. And yeah, so there's no dialogue in the scene, but under normal circumstances, if you're using typical Hitchcockian uh, suspense build, you probably take much longer to to execute it and it's got some great sort of hitchcockian moments in there that collins built in but you'd slow drip it a little bit more we didn't want a six-hour movie and that scene happens in deep into act three there was a lot of playing with with that scene in particular to ensure that the tension was high the stakes were high and yet we got through it economically enough to keep it uh, at the moment the structure of where it was how you get there if i'm more really honest with you steve in the case of that it's go in and a back and forth between colin and i try this and gradually we would find our path but you go into those scenes knowing that the scene as it as a standalone scene plays great we have the challenge of telling all of the story that needs to be told in there making it tense but getting it through it economically and in terms of the method of how that happens, the strange thing is it's an organic back and forth between editor and director uh, where you're just smoothing away and refining at it in order to get it into the right place. And then you go, at the end of the day, you go, look, I think that works. Let's sleep on it. And then in the morning, let's look at that scene, the, the version we've just done, but in the context of three scenes either side and see whether or not we'd done the Lord's work. And that kind of was how I worked with Colin was if we had something like that, we would refine, 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 and then sleep on it and look at it the next day. And if it was still working, we knew we'd done some good stuff. I remember that scene very clearly, and I don't want to give anything away to the audience or spoil it, but it basically ends with a jump scare. And literally, if you'd wanted to, you could have either made it twice as long or half as long. So it is a question of, man, how long do we want to go? And I'm sure you could have built it just about any way that you'd wanted to. Yeah, that's the thing is if the scene's really exciting on the page and the footage is obviously great, as an editor, you've got, let's say, 30 of that type of scene in the overall movie, but you're dealing with the exactly the same challenge on each one of those 30 scenes, which is it could be this length or it could be this length. And it's really fun at this length, but if we need it shorter, then maybe that character's not going to have that moment and it's there's that old you know film school thing about killing your babies there are moments that you have to give up on sort of beauty moments or detail moments in order to get through it with the same level of tension but in a more economical way those are the decisions i have to say colin did such amazing work with so many beautiful moments that i was just very glad ultimately i would push it up to a certain point and then i say colin i'm not going to be the arbiter of this one you're the the boss man you tell me shall i drop this shot and he would always have the confidence to go yep take it out and that would make the scene work but for me there's a lot of gold that was exercised in a very confident way by colin to ensure that those scenes work the way they did i love to talk about shot size choosing shots when you're trying to build either the scene we were just describing or another one building the structure of it not just timing 
but what shots you're using and the emotional context of a shot size. Can you talk to me about a little bit about how that affects you? Definitely when you've got dailies that are as beautiful as we had on Jurassic is that you're dealing with these big stars, these great actors, and you're all, sometimes you're dealing with huge sets and there's a lot of money in those frames. My way that I look at it is that if you wanted to uh, get fired, you could use some really great performances in close-up throughout the whole scene. Start on a wide and then just go close-up or mid-shot, mid-shot, close-up, close-up, close-up. That's not going to work because you need to be able to have a not only a sense of geography but a sense of the size and scope of even the smaller scenes in there they, the production design is all dripping off the screen there's a curious balance to be struck between the drama and the visuals and then mixed in there you have the juxtaposition of the choice of angles and it's not like we stuck to any one rule actually that's not true there was one rule that we stuck to which was the original characters scenes we attempted to honor Mr. Spielberg and Mr. Michael Kahn in the way that those were shot and assembled. So stylistically, there is actually a, a deliberate effort to stick to the Jurassic World editing for Chris Pratt and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard and Izzy Sermon and try and honor Mr. Kahn and Mr. Spielberg for Laura Dern and Sam Neill scenes with, with Ian Malcolm, for instance. There's that. But to that aside, I can only be driven by performance. I go from line by line, I find the best performance of each line. And if it happens to be in a shot that uh, doesn't connect, then I'll make that decision there and then as I'm assembling it, and I won't necessarily go with that line. But what I find is that there's this interesting thing that actors will do, which is they will inherently save on their great performances until the camera's either in a two shot with them or in a close up with them. And so the wider shots I find tend to be the connective tissue in between uh, and the dynamic. So if you've got, you know, roving, moving shots, they'll end up being connective tissue in, into, in between close-ups where there's clear golden performances going on. So going through line by line and sticking to performance as my benchmark, what you find is there's a just suddenly there's a natural organic feel that occurs where you'll you'll feel the need to pop out or to go in close and it's something that just gradually unfolds for you but in order to do that you have to follow the performance love it how much were you trying to compress the post-climax part of the movie as you were trying to wrap up the final threads of the film interestingly a lot of the epilogue was cut at the beginning the reason for that was because we shot for three weeks in canada for the opening sequences with chris pratt and then we went into covid lockdown which nobody had obviously experienced the fact that we were up and running and shooting meant that we we didn't get cancelled we ummed and out about what we were going to do and so i'd already i've worked with evercast in the past so i i uh, had Evercast set up and we'd planned for going remote in this weird uh, thing that we'd never done before. The moment we hit the lockdown, they weren't shooting anymore. I went home and got my system up and running and uh, Colin went home and we started piecing together the, uh, the epilogue and 
there's a lot of stock footage that we added dinosaurs to because we didn't have dailies. The genius of Colin Trevorrow was that as we were uh, working out what could we cut with while we were waiting to hear when we could get back to shoot, which ended up being about three months, was that he had this idea of grabbing some stock footage and cutting it together for our final epilogue and then turning those shots over to visual effects to add dinosaurs to and uh, the benefit of that was that we were editing so we weren't wasting time we didn't have a camera crew but we were uh, sourcing material and we were turning over visual effects shots to the visual effects department so on that level it's a genius move by the director and i don't think anybody would have noticed that that little piece of magic applied there We had a lot of material that we could put together. So the epilogue came together. It was one of several sequences that we uh, put together during that, that period of going into first lockdown and shooting again. The epilogue, ironically, is, is probably the one sequence in the movie that we played around with for the longest. And so there are long versions of it and there are short versions of it. The music in the epilogue we played around with the most. That went back and forth several times because tonally, Jurassic movies have tended to end with a, a sequence where you see uh, dinosaurs setting up where the world is at the end of that particular story. But we played with, are our dinosaurs in this scenario, is it an upbeat ending? Is it a dark ending? Or is it somewhere in between the two? And so the assembly of the epilogue kind of, we would play with one version, then park it for two months, and then play with another version, and then park it for two months. And gradually would be, we would have turned over the visual effects shots and they'd be coming back in. But tonally, we needed to wait until we'd assembled the rest of the entire movie to know which version of the ending fitted. And so the interesting thing is, we started with it at the beginning of the process, and inevitably it was the last thing that we, we played with in the edit at the very end. Love it. Did you test screen different versions of the epilogue or no? We had a couple of test screenings, and between those there were two different versions of the, the epilogue. But uh, actually, interestingly, it was mainly music that was the difference and not much about the visuals that had, had changed. So tonally, the, the music that you see, I think, hits the right note. And my inclination was originally to go with something a lot more upbeat for the ending to to conclude it in a way to definitively says this is the end of the six movies or let's assume so for now at least and and so i played it very big and and upbeat but when you then stand back and watch the the movie i think the audience i know the audience much preferred just the change of tone of the music that left it a little bit more open-ended it's not like all of the problems are solved at the end of the story. So they needed something that wasn't so conclusive. Uh, you did mention uh, COVID and your use of Evercast. Tell me a little bit about this new world we're in where I think none of us could have foreseen remote work three years ago, that you'd be separated from your director. Talk to me about collaborating with him and working on your own and using remote, remote solution to be able to work. It was really interesting because Colin's a great guy. I'd never worked with him before. And when we sat down to, to work together for the first time, short of a couple of very brief meetings at Pinewood when, during the first you know, three weeks of shoot, 
other than that, the first time I really sat down to him was in between the first three weeks and the rest of the movie in this three month period where we kind of were getting to know each other, but also we were getting to know each other virtually. I'm plugging Evercast here because it saved our asses in that we, from day one, it felt, I remember saying to Colin, it felt like the way I work, I sit at the back of the room, I have the screens, and then there's the sofa and the director, and then there's a, a big screen on the other side of the room, which means that you're not actually necessarily face-to-face talking to your director. You're talking to the back of their head, and they can't see you. Evercast just became a different version of exactly the same thing, because we're not looking at each other as we're communicating. We're both looking at the screen in front of us. And because it was just something that uh, we could switch on and Colin switched on his end, I switched on my end, and suddenly we just felt like we were in the room together, we were extraordinarily lucky that we were able to do that because it was a, a system that we both... Uh, immediately felt was just an extension of what we would be doing in the room together. I could tell you, Steve, that it was an absolute nightmare, but we broke through it. It's not the case. Once we got that rhythm down in the first sort of hour of working together, then it was just like being in the same room. Now, visual effects meetings and those sort of things, we would occasionally, because we were improvising how this whole remote system uh, would work, we would use a combination of Evercast and CineSync in order to have the bigger meetings. But that was only because at the beginning we were finding our way and we were just, as a group, the visual effects department hadn't used Evercast. They were very used to using their own tools. So there was a a symbiosis of, of ideas and methods that just got us to where we needed to be at the beginning. But it was all very fluid. When you have people who are like-minded and they get on with each other, then the creative process can, we found, can work under any uh, circumstances. So the reality is that I moved to my house after those first three weeks and I didn't see Colin Trevorrow for about, I think, short of one brief set visit between anywhere between six and eight months. And that is how we edited the movie. And then After I'd seen him, then we carried on working uh, remotely again. So there's got to be about a year of our 18 months on the movie that was remote working. And it's a testament to both Colin and his flexibility and his creativity and the the technical guys behind Evercast that uh, we were able to achieve that. Is there anything specific that you feel you missed of being in the room? Is there a social component? Is there a going to lunch component? The connection between a director and an editor is very strong and it's long, like a year, 18 months, two years. It's a long time that you're with somebody. I think it it comes down to the character of the individuals involved, because I think there are a lot of directors out there who, given the situation where maybe they're sat in their home office and maybe their kids are there or their girlfriend's there, wouldn't be able to actually maintain focus. And I respect that. It's not easy for everybody to do, but we were placed in a scenario where we we had a responsibility to deliver a movie. We had a responsibility to to replan how we were going to do all of this. And I think the combination of Colin's focus and our commitment as an editorial team and director 
to just keep on working whatever the uh, the situation was that we had inflicted upon us. I found that because of that, because of my team backing me up with all the technical side of it, and because Colin was just so easy to work with, that it, it was actually a dream. And I'll be honest with you, Steve, it was the first time in my career that at five o'clock, I wasn't still working or racing to get a train home to see my family. But Colin would say, all right, that's our day. I'm going to have a dinner with my family. You should have dinner with yours. And I walked out of the office at the top of my garden and I walked the 100 meters down to the house and sat down with my family and, and had dinner. So there were some sort of tremendous bonuses uh, that, that came from that. I love it. That's fantastic. I love that time with your family was so respected by him and by both of you. That's great. Great to hear. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. I really appreciate your time today. All right. Uh, Very good talking to you, Steve. As always, the very best to you and your family. Thank you so much. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, the new online home of Art of the Cut, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven Curated Look at the Craft of Editing. Thanks to our guest, Mark Sanger, ACE. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsors, Evercast and Jump Desktop. Be sure to check out their offers at jumpdesktop.com slash cut and evercast.us. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that we've moved and that they should subscribe right here for more great Art of the Cut interviews every week. (music) ¶¶